Welcome, everyone, to the new 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories podcast. Here you'll find a collection of Sherlock Holmes adventures, as well as the best of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's stories. Some from our archives at 1001 Classic Short Stories and 1001 Stories for the Road, and some newly produced, all here for your entertainment. Mm. It's a most interesting experiment, Watson. Pray do examine the snake. I'd rather not, if you don't mind, Holmes. My experience in Afghanistan and that dreadful case of the speckled band have taught me to have a healthy respect for snakes. Yes, but look at it. It's dead. (laughs) Well, at least it has the appearance of being so. A snake, like some other reptiles and animals, hibernates. There is no pulse. The temperature of the body is extremely cold. Yet it is alive. This is most interesting. To my scientific mind, man is still an animal, so... Why can't we bring about this condition in our fellow men? Professor Julius Waldhausen is calling to see me this morning. He claims that it is possible. present the stories of Sherlock Holmes. The Balthausen Experiment. The autumn of 1887 was grey and gloomy. The trees knew winter would be dark and bitter. They shed their leaves early, and the cold drizzle swirled the dead masses into the gutterings of the rooftops, into the blocked drains and dirty manholes of the London streets. It was a depressing time. A time for crackling log fires and indoor comforts. On one such dreary morning, I came down to breakfast to find Holmes seated at his workbench, Mrs. Hudson's excellent meal lay neglected upon the table. Holmes was hard at work on the body of a snake. Mm, Yes, as I say, most interesting. Take a look, Watson. You must agree with me. I think I prefer my breakfast, Holmes. Surely you can leave that wretched reptile for a cup of hot coffee. Uh, By all means, Watson. At least I'm sure that the creature will not slither away. Uh, But you haven't answered my question. Do you think it possible to place a human being in a state of suspended life? As a medical man, I must say that I do not, Holmes. It's entirely against nature. One could argue that pain-killing with anesthetics is exactly the same, Watson. Yet they're making enormous strides in such practices. Ah, uh, that is the doorbell. It must be my visitor, Professor Waldhausen. Well, it's time for you to answer my second question. Are you interested in hearing this man's theories? Well, I'm certainly not leaving until I've finished my breakfast. I assume you will not be above offering him a cup of coffee? Of course not. And keep your ears open, Watson. I would like your opinion. There's a gentleman here to see you, Mr. Holmes. No card. Couldn't catch the name. Professor, somebody around. Uh, Professor Waldhausen, yes. Show him in, please, Mrs. Hudson. Uh, very good, sir. Uh, this way, please. Thank you. Thank you very much. Ah, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, and uh, this must be uh, the well-known physician, Dr. John Watson. That is so. Good morning to you, Professor. Pray do be seated. There's a coat rack near the door for your wet cake. Ah. Come near the fire. Would you like to join us at breakfast? I have already eaten, but a a cup of coffee would be most pleasant. Allow me. 
Please make yourself at home. I'm afraid the place isn't very tidy. <laughs> well, compared to my own home, it is neatness itself. I am afraid I drive my two assistants to much anger with my ways. You have assistants? And they help you in the experiments which you wrote to me about? Uh, yeah, yeah, that is correct. Ah, I see you have the sleeping snake held up on this tray on the table. You are interested in suspended life, Mr. Holmes? In hibernation of animal life, yes. No one can doubt the existence of such patterns, but I know nothing of your experiments with human beings. <laughs> I, I am no monster, Mr. Holmes. I, I have made no such experiments. I, I am no Frankenstein from the pages of Mrs. Shelley's novel. <laughs> I have carried out many tests on many pets, cats, dogs, and even farm animals. I have had them declared legally dead by veterinary surgeons. And then, much to their amazement, I have, by a simple injection of a serum, brought them back to life with no harm done whatever. I think it is possible that this can be done with human beings. <laughs> does that amaze you, Dr. Watson? Oh, frankly, yes, it does. While keeping an open mind upon the subject, I must say I can't see any valid reason for wishing to bring this about. I mean, what circumstances could it be of use? Travel. Travel? Oh, yes. One of these days, man will travel out into what we call space. I believe within a hundred years, we shall have set foot on the moon. Oh, come now. That really is something from the pages of a novel. That will never be possible. What do you say, Holmes? As you say, Watson, it's best to keep an open mind. But uh, to return to your theories, Professor, you feel that man cannot only conquer space, but also time... You believe that one can suspend life and return from the dead, say, a year later, without having aged in any way? Yeah, exactly. I, I am sure of this. There are very few men of your precise knowledge and imagination in London, Mr. Holmes. I, I invite you to examine my experiments at any time. My home and laboratories are at Harrow Lodge, Main Road Hatch End. My assistants are Dr. John Rossiter and his wife, Eileen. Both qualified scientists. They are helping me with my work. I should be ready for a demonstration in ten days, a fortnight. Will you both attend? I should be most honored if you would. Do say you agree. assured the professor that we would attend any future demonstration of his experiments, and I left them to do my daily rounds. Frankly, I thought the old fellow a rather dangerous eccentric. Holmes reserved his judgment and continued his own studies. I was far too busy with my work to bother much about the professor, and soon forgot his invitation, until one day... Oh, oh, goodness gracious me, what a tragedy... Oh, Professor Walshausen has been found dead. Oh, Holmes, he's died in his sleep. Natural causes, and there's no suspicion of foul play. Be reckless, Holmes. I have indeed, Watson. I sent a telegram of condolence to his home and a request that I be allowed to visit his assistants, Dr. Rossiter and his wife, this very afternoon. If you're not overworked, perhaps you'd care to accompany me. <laughs> I agree with you that if this be a natural death, then it's extremely sad news for... I sincerely believe that the professor was on the verge of an outstanding discovery with his experiments. Yes, well, shall we try to find out more, Watson? As always, when requested to accompany Sherlock Holmes and any of his investigations, I managed to find the time to do so. 
And because the weather was so inclement, we took a four-wheeler straight from Baker Street to Hatch End. It was a blustery, uncomfortable journey, and I wondered if it really was worthwhile. We arrived at Harrow Lodge to find Rossiter and his wife Eileen in a state of near despair. I'm, I'm sorry to welcome you like this, Mr. Holmes. It's, it's been a very great shock. My wife and I are at our wit's end. It, it was the one thing we did not expect. Uh, the professor was not a young man, but he seemed in good health. We were all working so happily. There, there's so much at stake, and, and to have something like this end at all. Uh, must have been very upsetting for you both. Tell me, you were privy to all the professor's theories? To most of his experimental work, yes. We worked as a team. But there were a great deal of his latest ideas that he wrote in German. Just notes, you understand. We were simply here to follow his instructions. I felt all the time that he was progressing beyond himself and urged him to rest. Perhaps it was overwork. You had a doctor? The death certificate, what did it say? Well, it, it just says heart failure. A natural death in his sleep. We neither of us have a regular doctor. We, we called the police. They took over... Uh, the police surgeon assured us it was a simple case of heart failure. Well, at least he didn't suffer. He had no near family? Wife? Children? Any relatives? No one. I believe there was a sister in Australia or South Africa many years ago, but he'd lost touch. Then can I assume that you are to inherit from his death? Oh, my dear Holmes, I happen to know all about the professor's estate. It's nothing. This house is mortgaged up to the hilt. There are a few sticks of furniture which belong to Eileen and myself, but his finances are negligible. In a word, he was penniless. There may even be a few deaths. That will be up to us to clear up. We shall try our best. I see. Well, I presume that he had a lawyer and that all the funeral arrangements have been taken care of. Oh, yes. Thompson and White in Half Moon Street, London, handle all these affairs. I actually recommended Thompson myself. And the funeral is to be held the day after tomorrow. I hope you can find time to attend. It's in Great Harrow Church. I shall certainly do my best. Uh, now, if you're sure I can be of no more help, I'm, I'm afraid not. But thank you for your sympathy. We do appreciate it. Don't we, dear? Yes, of course. There's nothing you or anyone else can do. After all, we can't bring him back. No. Can we? Good day to you, Mr. Holmes. Dr. Watson. And thank you again for calling like this. Well, they've gone. Do you think we did the right thing in keeping our secret? Yes. Home? Yes, of course. Are you still prepared to go through with it? Naturally. Oh, John, we can't give up now. The fact that the professor's dead makes it even more urgent. We must go through with our plans. How are we going to live otherwise? I'm not afraid. Oh, my sweet, courageous Eileen. What would I do without you? Very well. We carry on. We must make detailed plans this very day. Then all you have to do is trust me. You do trust me, don't you? With my life, darling. <laughs> Sherlock Holmes was not entirely satisfied by our visit to Hatch End, but he refused to discuss the matter. Although, much to my surprise, he insisted that we return two days later to attend the funeral. This time we took the train down, and once again it was a squally wet day. The service and burial were simple and mercifully short. A handful of people only left the churchyard in the soaking rain. Oh, Oh, dear. What a miserable affair. You really shouldn't have attended, darling. You should be home in bed. Don't you agree, Dr. Watson? You certainly seem extremely unwell, Mrs. Rossiter. I should advise an immediate return home, a hot bath, and a few days in bed. You say you haven't a personal position? No. No, but it's all right. I'm sure it's nothing but a very bad cold. Yes, well, you'd better not hang about in the rain. 
Good day to you, Mrs. Rosker. Good day, Dr. Watson. Bye, Mr. Holmes. Good day, Dr. Goodbye. Goodbye, Mrs. Rosker. Mrs. Rosker, uh, we'll be in touch. Yes. Ah, you are Mr. James Thompson of Half Moon Street, is that, sir? Yes, that's right. And you are Mr. Sherlock Holmes. I'm sorry we've met under such bad circumstances. Are you returning to London? About a 12 10 train, yes. Ah, then perhaps we can travel together. I have a cab waiting in Church Lane to take me to the station. Oh, will you join me? Our meeting with James Thompson had all happened so naturally that I couldn't believe it had been contrived. And yet Sherlock Holmes, with his usual diplomacy, managed to get far more information out of the lawyer on our train journey home than I would have dreamed possible. It was almost as though he'd arranged the whole thing. Oh, yes, it was Dr. Roster who introduced me to the professor. That was some time ago. A great tragedy. He was a very fine man and apparently a surplus worker. He gave everything to science and, well, made nothing out of his thoughts. You mean he had nothing to leave in his will? Not a penny. The Rosters will be able to take over the laboratory, but uh, the debts incurred will use up any capital. Uh, it seems that pure science is not a profitable occupation. Research such as the professor and his assistants do should be conducted in some college or sponsored by a government organization. Yes, I've often suggested that to Roster, but, well, he seems to think that these experiments are of a special kind. He has a little money of his own, of course, but... How long that'll last in these new circumstances, I don't know. He seems a very sensible young man. He must have some plans. If he has, I know nothing of them. Apart from an extraordinarily large life assurance policy upon his wife. Well, they seem to be drifting somewhat. Oh, but I, I shouldn't be discussing my client's health. Do forgive me. It's really done out of sheer concern. Of course. Of course. Yes, I understand. Well, one can only hope that the future is kind to both of them. Now, look, you know my address. 221B Baker Street. If there's anything I can do for you or the Rossiters in the future, please don't hesitate to call upon me, Mr. Thompson. With that, Holmes retired behind his newspaper, and Thompson and I made small talk for the rest of the journey back to town. Once again, I forgot the affair completely, until one morning, a week later... Mr. James Thompson to see you, Mr. Holmes, says it's urgent. Oh, show him in, Mrs. Hudson. Show him in at once. Oh, pray do pardon this intrusion, Mr. Holmes. Uh, Dr. Watson, I have to call immediately. You will not have heard the terrible news. It's from Hat's End. Dr. Roster, his wife, Eileen, she has died. What? Good gracious, when did this happen? Yesterday evening, it seems that still she caught at the professor's funeral must have turned to pneumonia. After a short illness, she died at Harrow Lodge. I heard late last night. This is a great tragedy, Thompson. Have you made full inquiries? I mean, who was the doctor? I presume they called one in. Yes, a, a local man. Uh, there are only two in Hat's End. This fellow is Cyrus Mortimer. They, he was too late to get Eileen into hospital. By the time he got to her bedside, she was dead. Really, Mr. Holmes, it does seem as though that place is doomed to tragedy. How has Rosset taken it? I gather he's most upset. He's coming here tomorrow to see if there's anything I can do, but... Really rather a waste of time. I thought you'd like to be told the news instead of reading about it in the obituary notices of the newspaper. Yes, yes, thank you for calling. It's good of you. I think I shall send a wire of condolence straight away. Perhaps if Rossiter comes up to town, he will also call upon me. Or if it's not too much of an imposition, maybe I can join him at your chambers. By all means. It's most odd. I have the strangest feelings about these two deaths, Mr. Holmes. They're both from natural causes, of course, but I am disturbed about them. It... It makes me fear that 
Well, that perhaps John Rossiter's own life may be in danger. I know it sounds absurd, but... Well, they say tragedy often strikes in threes, don't they? Well, I shall be at my offices all tomorrow morning. Rossiter is due at 11. Uh, please feel free to join us at any time after that hour. And now I must go. There is much to be done. Sad business. Yes, indeed, a sad business. After James Thompson left us, Holmes sat for a long time in his chair by the fire. His unlit pipe clenched in his teeth and the fingers of his thin hands placed together. He stared at the flames, stirring himself only to say... It's not often that I'm tempted to agree with another person's intuitions, Watson. I'm a person who deals in facts only, but... I'm inclined to agree with Thompson. There's, there's so much missing. So much that cannot be explained. Oh, well... And meanwhile, I shall return to my animal studies on hibernation. Oh, Holmes, ever since the professor invited you to interest yourself in his experiments, you've become obsessed with the idea of suspended life. As a medical man, I'm used to seeing death as it really is. I can only say what I said in the beginning. It's a fantasy, and one far ahead of its time. Such things should be left alone, and that's that. Although I was quite dogmatic in my viewpoint... I still agreed to accompany Holmes the next morning to meet John Rossiter and give my condolences. Much to my surprise, Holmes appeared to be rather unsympathetic. He asked a great deal of questions that I personally thought unnecessary. I do hope you have finished any business you've been discussing, Dr. Rossiter. Yes, yes, there, there isn't very much. Just a question of money for the funeral. Two deaths in such a short time is a severe draining on my savings. Mr. Thompson has agreed to advance me a small loan upon my wife's life policy. Ah, I see. Uh, when is the funeral to take place, may I inquire? In two days' time. Arrangements have been made with the same funeral parlour as before, but... But Eileen is still lying at home, back at Harrow Lodge. I simply haven't been able to say goodbye to her. It, it is weak of me, I know. Now, if you would excuse me, I really must be getting back there. Thank you for your condolences, and thank you for... Your financial support, Mr. Thompson. You will excuse me now, won't you? Yes, yes, of course. I'll walk with you to the station, if I may, Dr. Rossiter. Yes, uh, of course. I come, Watson. I'll see you out, gentlemen. If there is anything further I can do, then please call upon me, won't you? Good day to you. Uh, good day, Mr. Thompson. You must forgive me if I have seemed a little abrupt this morning, Dr. Rossiter. The fact is that I wished to ask you a few questions of personal nature, not in front of Mr. Thompson. Oh? I'm, I'm afraid I'm rather too upset to concentrate greatly. Uh, can it not wait until some other time? I'd like to clarify a few things in my mind, and they may not be another time. It's regarding your work, or rather the work that Professor Waldhausen left unfinished. He invited me to share an interest in his experiments in suspended life. He said he would confide in me his results. He was sure that the theorem he perfected would render a human being quite lifeless, but he would be able to return life to them as a suitable antidote of another theorem. You must be familiar with his work. I think I've already told you, Mr. Holmes, that I was working under his instructions. I know nothing positive about his experiments. You do not propose to consider continuing the work? I do not. And what is more, now that my wife is dead, I shall sell everything I possess and travel abroad. America, most likely. Now, do excuse me. I have, I have nothing more to say. Good day to you. Goodbye, Dr. Watson. Goodbye. We shall not meet again. Say, Holmes, that was just rude of you. Four fellows bereaved us a day, and you've upset me enormous. Yes. Yes, indeed I have. And yet... Oh. 
It was all over so swiftly. The runaway horse and carriage knocked over John Rossiter. He disappeared under flying hooves and the heavy wheels. By the time the carriage had been stopped and order returned, I had examined the body. Rossiter was dead. He must have been killed instantly. He's dead, Thompson. You're right. So was Thompson. It's a case where death comes in three. Wasn't it? I don't wish to appear heartless, but there's a great deal more at stake here than it appears. We must summon the police and leave this all to them. You and I are taking a four-wheeler and heading for Harrow Lodge. If my theory is correct, we may still be in time to prevent a third tragedy. Come along. I couldn't think what Holmes had in mind. And as usual in these cases, he refused to elaborate. The cab was summoned, and the journey made to hatch end in record time. There, we pulled up in the driveway of the lodge... And Holmes accosted an elderly gardener who was brushing away dead leaves in the porch. You must let us into the house. It's most urgent. You have a key? I have an eye, Jampy, letting you in. Not till the master comes. Your master won't be coming back. And it's important oh. that we enter the house. I am a private detective and known to the police. I insist that you let us in immediately. Well, uh, this be most irregular, but if you promise not to touch anything... I make no promises, but I will take full responsibility. Hurry, man, hurry. Reluctantly... The old gardener unlocked the front door and Holmes immediately made his way to the professor's laboratory. I found the body of Eileen Rossiter laid out in a downstairs room. I examined her. She was dead all right. In less than five minutes, Holmes was back with me. He carried a doctor's bag in one hand and placing it on the table said, I hope I'm right, Watson. I'm sure I am. Here, look at this. Now see, this the white fluid in the tube and this the hypodermic syringe. Now, here, this is more your job than mine. Inject this into a main artery. Holmes, are you serious? This woman's dead. She is not. She only appears to be. Use the syringe. With trembling hands, I did as Holmes had ordered. I could not believe in this fantastic experiment. After the injection, we stood at the trestle table for what seemed like hours before I noticed the color returning to the woman's cheeks. Shallow breathing started and gained in strength. And Eileen Rossiter was coming alive before our very eyes. It's working, Watson. And she will live, after all. You see? While I do not doubt the professor's death is genuine, the Rossiter's engineered this, using the serum and antidote to render this woman certified as dead. The plan being to claim the life insurance money and bring her back to life, then leave the country to start anew somewhere else. As you say, it's unbelievable. And an experiment that should never have been made. Poor woman. How she will start again after knowing of her husband's death, I can't imagine. But we've saved her life, Watson. She must make up her own mind how she uses it. Poor soul. Listen again next Sunday to The Stories of Sherlock Holmes with Graham Armitage's Holmes and Kerry Jordan as Dr. Watson.
What's that, Holmes? Oh, you mean more coffee? You want me to pour you some more, sir? Or would you like more bacon? <laughs> no, Watson. I was not referring to the breakfast or the coffee. You will not, I'm sure, be offended in any way if I say that I find your acceptance of the ordinary always refreshing. I don't think I understand, Holmes. I, I, I'm not aware that I've done anything unusual. I've barely spoken to you since I came to the table. Exactly. Yet you told me a great deal. You will always accept things on their face value. I happen to see quite a bit deeper than that. That's why I say you should do it. You should accept the invitation from your old school to contribute to their field bazaar. Now, am I not right? present the stories of Sherlock Holmes. Tonight, the Field Bazaar. In the early days of my association with Sherlock Holmes, I have to admit that I found him rather overbearing. In later years, I grew used to his manner, and after I'd married Mary and moved away from 221B Baker Street, I was able to laugh at my feelings of inferiority. But he was never an easy man to understand, and I well remember during the summer of 1885 being particularly disconcerted by his attitude. It was one of those lovely, long, hot English summers, days which cried out to be spent in the country, walks along narrow, leafy lanes filled with the drone of bees and the smell of honeysuckle. That's why, when our letter arrived on that August morning, I was very tempted, and Holmes knew this. I repeat, I should say yes. Holmes, I really don't know what you're talking about. I've just told you. You've been asked to help in the Oxley Field Bazaar. Haven't you? Yes, that's correct, but I cannot for the life of me see how you know this. The letter has only just come to hand, and I've not spoken to you since I opened it. In spite of that, I would even venture to suggest the purpose of the bazaar. It's to gain funds in order to enlarge the school's cricket field. Holmes, there are times when I think you use some form of black magic. <laughs> you really are a most excellent companion, Watson. You respond instantly to all my mental processes. Really, I can find you easier to read each morning than I do the daily newspapers. I'm sorry. I, I'm so transparent. I, I don't think it's unintelligent to be puzzled by your knowledge. But if you're so clever, perhaps you'll tell me how you've arrived at your conclusion. I really claim no credit. The facts are so obvious. You came into breakfast with a thoughtful expression. The expression of a man who is debating some point in his mind. In your hand, you held a solitary letter. Now, last night, you retired in the best of spirits. So it was clear that it was in this letter which caused the change in you. Yes, well, that's obvious. Well, anything's obvious once it's explained. I naturally asked myself what the letter could contain which might have this effect upon you. As you came and sat down, you had the flap side of the envelope towards me. There is a crest upon it, the Oxley crest. The same shield-shaped device which is on your old cricket cap. Then you poured yourself a cup of coffee and walked over to the mantelpiece. Yes, well, that's very observant. 
Then? You gazed for some time at the group photograph of yourself and the cricket team. Clearly, you were remembering many occasions of being in that side. You came back down, helped yourself to eggs and bacon, and again read the letter. This time the envelope was face side up. I could see that it was informally addressed just to John Watson, Esquire. So it must have been something of a friendly and informal nature. Now, there are three institutions that are almost always debt-laden. The country churches, the old people's homes, and the cricket clubs. Your interest was certainly in the cricket club. Uh, well, quite correct. Well, the best fundraising idea is a form of a bazaar. It's a very popular activity among public schools at the moment. Hence my suggestion that you should take part in it. Now, what is it to be? An old boys' cricket match on Oxley Common? Or will you use the school facilities? <laughs> all right, Holmes, all right, you win. Your deductions are correct as usual. Mm, splendid. Now tell me, are you accepting? Yes, I will. On one condition. Oh, and what's that? That you accompany me. Our old boy's side may be a man or two short, and you're a good bat as well as a rather crafty slow bowler. What do you say, Holmes? Weather's ideal. We stay Friday and Saturday nights at the Boar's Head and Oxley Common, get back here on Sunday evening. Very welcome break in the country. Now, come on, do say yes. My surprise... Sherlock Holmes agreed immediately. I wrote off to Oxley School, accepting the invitation and placing my name down for cricket. I also mentioned that Holmes, while not an old boy, was prepared to help out as extra man should he be needed. The weather continued to hold good, and Friday saw us down at Oxley in good time. I'd known the war's heads since I was a student, and I was happy to find that it still maintained its excellent standards. That evening, the bar was crowded with visitors, all with one subject in mind. The next day's cricket match. Oh, I say, I say, it's Watson, isn't it? John Watson. That's right. By uh, Joe, don't tell me, Rufus. Matthew Rufus. Well, I, I haven't seen you in over 20 years. Uh, must be every bit of that. I take it you're down here for the match tomorrow. That's right. Thought I'd like to support the old school, you know. Oh, uh, allow me to introduce you. This is Sherlock Holmes. How do you? Colonel Matthew Rufus. How do you? How do you? Um, have you studied the sides? A copy of the teams and batting order over there on the notice board. Yes, I did take a look at it earlier. It seemed very well balanced. Should be a good match. Hardly anyone I can remember on the list, though. Most fellows have simply sent in a contribution. Bad show. I think it's much more cooperative to turn up and do one's bit, eh? There are a couple of the old stalwarts there, of course. Thackeray and Moncton. I was all for putting them in the same side, but the uh, committee thought it would unbalance the match. They're both fierce cricketers. <laughs> Playing together... Their side would win hands down. Well, they always were rivals, even at college. Well, it got worse as the years have gone by. There's some talk about Thackeray making a pass at other men's wives. No, I'm not surprised. He always was a dog for the ladies. And Munson's as jealous as blazes. Ungovernable temper. Well, uh, let's hope he doesn't find his way onto the pitch. Oh, it could well do. Uh, Munson is a bowler of tremendous speed. 
but uh, not all that careful. He's inclined to aim at the batsman more than the wicket. Oh, dangerous. Uh, Thackeray, on the other hand, is known to go all out to win, regardless of what happens. Yes, from what I recall, he's never been a popular man with the other side. He ever takes a risk. Successful, but not really a sportsman. Plays to win. Doesn't care how it comes about. Yeah, that's right. Uses his pads too much. Never played in innings without two or three appeals for LBW. Rumor also has it that uh, he'd often tried to square the umpires in his favor. Yeah, doesn't sound a very good sort. Well, neither of them are, in my opinion. The captains will uh, just have to keep a tight rein, huh? Oh, that's your captain over there in the corner having a quiet pint. Charles Ellis, local chemist. Sound fellow. Uh, take you across and introduce you, shall I? I met Ellis and a few other cricketers whom I didn't know. Holmes, never bored when there were interesting people around to study, puffed away at his Maersham pipe and listened avidly to the local gossip. Time went by, and then Ellis and the Colonel were joined by James Monkton. Well, Monkton, ready for the game tomorrow? You're ready for anything, Colonel. Anything that your side and that lout Thackeray can dish up. Oh, come on now, Monkton. That's not the spirit you approach the game with. It's a social occasion, not a private war. Well, that's all very well, Ellis. You're Thackeray's captain, and it's your job to see he plays cricket in the proper manner. But as long as I've known him, he's been utterly selfish out there in the pitch. He thinks only of himself, getting runs and blocking with his pads. It holds up the game and drags it out, just stonewalling until the spectators groan with boredom. I hope you'll give him some firm instructions not to apply those tactics tomorrow. Monkton, you know as well as I do that that's his style of play. But surely you can advise him to take a few chances. Go for some runs and give the crowd their money's worth. And as you say, it's a social occasion. Let's give him something to clap for. I'm sure he'll do his best. <laughs> well, if he plays his usual game, it won't be good enough. I tell you, now give him a run for his money. He starts that pad play stuff. Now pack my leg field and have him on the hop. Oh, no, look here, Monkton. That's no attitude. That's no attitude in which to approach the game. Now, this is cricket, not a dastard vendetta. No, and you've got to remember that Thackeray isn't as young as he was. You start bowling bouncers and aiming for his body, it could cause him an injury. Well, that's too bad. It's up to him. I heard all that, Monkton. Didn't know I was at the bar just behind you, did you? Huh? Oh, Thackeray. Well, I don't care if you heard or not. In fact, it's just as well. Perhaps now your captain will give you some well-founded advice. I don't need any advice, not from Ellis or anyone else. I'm going to play my usual game. Just because you've never got the better of me, on the field or off, is no reason why I should change. It's a pity you can't change a lot of things. Your behavior as a man is almost as bad as your cricket manners. Now, look here. If you really want to get personal, everyone knows you're not much of a man in lots of ways. Ask your wife. Why, you dirty nut. You think I got back around the Colonel Rufus, take his men out of here. This be a respectable pub, not gymnasium. Hear me? If you want to fight, get out on the lane. Now, come on, it's time anyway. Time, time, gentlemen, please. Clear from that very first evening that the Saturday match on Oxley Common was not going to be the quiet, relaxed game of village cricket that we'd all expected. Most of us, from Colonel Rufus and George Biggs the publican, down to the lowest farmer's boy, deplored the bad manners shown by both Monkton and Thackeray. 
Outside the boar's head in the warm night air, the two men were made to apologize to Biggs and were persuaded to shake hands. And then, in an atmosphere of uneasy truce, they said goodnight. Monkton went striding off down the main street, while Thackeray stood for a while arguing with Ellis, who was, no doubt, giving him a bit of a dressing down. The next morning saw the opening of the field bazaar by the vicar of Oxley. And after luncheon, our side won the toss and Chelmsford and Howes went into bat. I noted that Monkton was not put on to bow and wondered if they were saving him for when Thackeray went to the crease, which seemed rather a dangerous plan. However, whether by accident or design, that's exactly what happened. Chelmsford was caught in the slips at a score of 15, and in went Thackeray. He played his usual tight game, scoring quite a few runs, but taking no chances, and using his pads whenever possible. Then, when the total was 29, the opposing captain put Moncton on from the duck pond end. A murmur went round the spectators. Rumours spread quickly in country villages, and Oxley was no exception. Everyone knew of a row the night before. Gad! Those two are really at it. A bad show, eh, Holmes? Well, they're certainly not sinking their differences for the good of the game. Oh, yeah. An appeal for LBW. Umpire has disallowed it there. Thackeray was very lucky there, if you ask me. Just the sort of thing to infuriate Monkton. Yeah, afraid so. You'll start bowling straight at him to teach him a lesson. Huh? Same old arguments. Just what we feared would happen, huh? Mm. Uh, here he comes again. Long run. Right up to the wicket. Gas! Gas! Ah, that must have hurt. Bounced right full up and caught Thackeray in the chest. Oh, it was not cricket, sir. Intent to harm, all right. Definitely not cricket. Uh, Thackeray seems doubled up, but I... No, I think he's all right. He's not leaving the field, anyway. He's just rubbing his chest under the heart. Hitching his pants up now and patting the crease. Uh, Munchen in again. A fast one. And this time, Thackeray has got his own back. Well outside the stumps. And he stepped out and put his left pad to it. Oh, can't blame him. Oh, Monkton is furious, of course. Going back now to run again. Takes a long run, this man. All that force, he needs it. But in he comes. But, but wait a minute. Thackeray's staggering. Something is happening out there. But Thackeray's stumping down. Great heavens, he... He, he's collapsed. He, he's fallen down on his face. Watson, that man is ill out there. Come on, get out to him. He's seriously ill. Come on, let's get out there where there's no time. Holmes and I left our seats in the pavilion and hurriedly followed by the colonel, we raced across the grass towards the cricket pitch. Game had stopped, of course, and a cluster of fielders gathered around the prostrate body of Thackeray. They made way for me automatically, and I knelt down beside him. One look was enough. The man was dead. What's the matter, Watson? You're a doctor. What's wrong with the man? I'm afraid he's dead, Colonel. Must have been that blow under the heart. We must get him back to the pavilion. Dead? All right, Med. Lift him up. Carefully now. 
Alice, yes. Please see that it's as little fuss as possible. Okay, okay. Carry him off the field. The match must, of course, be abandoned, and I must see that the police are informed. Uh, Mugton, please find the village council. Police? What, what for? I mean, it must have been a heart attack. Why send for the police? Well, there must be an examination. Must make it official. I have no doubt about Watson's verdict, but things must be done in the correct manner. Give a hand there. Give a hand and keep the people back, for heaven's sake. Oh, come along. Let's get some order into things. Oh, come on. Thackeray's body was carried to the pavilion, and there a meeting extraordinary was held by the colonel. There was no panic. People were very concerned, but sympathetic and considerate. Sam Wiley, the local constable, was dispatched on his bicycle into Oxley for a carriage ambulance from the hospital. And shortly after that, Inspector Winters arrived. Well, there was really nothing much anyone could do. Just a regrettable accident. At least, so we all thought at that time. I looked around the pavilion and found Sherlock Holmes carefully removing the dead man's pads. Holmes. Holmes, what a tragic accident. That's what it appears to be, doesn't it? But as I'm always saying to you, Watson, you will take things at their face value. Oh, now, careful with these pads. I imagine the inspector will be in here at any moment... Things must be left to him, of course, but if he needs my help, then I will willingly give it. I think that for the time being, it would be better not to interfere. Holmes, you can't mean that this was not an accident. Of course it wasn't. Uh, I see what you mean. Monkton's intention to harm Thackeray at all costs. Yes, it's a very tricky situation. Right, uh, oh. Here they come now. Yes, Colonel, Monkton, yes. and the inspector. Uh, yes, well, we carried him in here, of course. And encouraged all the spectators to get back to the field bazaar. There's no sense in allowing this tragedy to ruin the whole of the charity. I understand, Colonel. I agree. But after the body is taken away, I'm afraid I shall have to go into things in rather more detail. For instance, Monkton, I shall have to ask you to come with me to the police station. <laughs> Whatever for? Well, uh, there will be an inquest. It's purely another formality, of course. I have no doubt it was heart failure. But heart failure caused by what? Everyone knows it was a blow to the heart by a cricket ball traveling at terrific speed. Now, now, wait a minute. I didn't kill Thackeray. I, I mean, it, it was an accident. I, I didn't deliberately kill him. I... Manslaughter is a very loose term, Monkton. There's a great deal of difference between manslaughter and murder... Manslaughter involves unplanned conditions and the like, accidents through negligence, but you are intent on causing bodily harm. There are dozens of witnesses prepared to testify to that. But, but that's ridiculous. An unlucky blow. Was... Like a man who killed someone in a fight? Exactly. Sorry, the matter will have to be taken up. It simply can't be glossed over. Do you not agree, Colonel? Uh, well, uh, it's, uh, it's not for me to say. You're the law, but, uh, well, uh, I'd seek advice from a solicitor as soon as you can, Monkton. Sound advice, Colonel. Come, man, you haven't been charged with anything yet. Let's get the body out of here. The carriage is waiting. Uh, bring him out this way. Go. Get the doors open, Peter. Uh, well, Colonel... Aren't you coming? No. No, and neither are you. We are both staying here. But, uh, Holmes, what do we do here? Very simple, Watson. Catch the murderer. Murderer? Quite. Thackeray didn't die of a heart attack. He was poisoned. What? 
Holmes, you can't be serious. My dear Watson, have I ever joked about sudden death? You are a medical man, but you were just as taken in by the circumstances as anyone else. I examined the dead man and thought it looked more like poison than a heart attack, and I was right. Look, careful now. Study the dead man's pads. Here, let me show you. Now, you see, these pads are stiffened with cane struts, but here, here is another twisted thorn. That splinter of wood is impregnated with a deadly poison. The man died not directly after a blow under the heart, but immediately after a blow on the left knee. He stepped out, used his pad. The splinter tore into the flesh of his knee, and that's how he died. Then, then if what you say is correct, whoever organized this dreadful crime must have known that Thackeray would be hit on the pads. The whole of Oxley knows that. Thackeray was bound sooner or later to risk putting a pad out to a fast ball in sheer defiance of Monkton's tactics. The fact that he received a blow the ball before was simply coincidence, and one which worked very nicely as far as the murderer was concerned. But Holmes, and, uh, who could have done this, this terrible thing? That's what we have to discover, isn't it? Look, the hue and cry has died down a little now. We shall have to be patient, I'm afraid. This pavilion is used not only as a dressing room for cricketers, but for storage as well. The cement roller, the gardener's equipment, everything used to keep the common clean and tidy. There are plenty of places where we can conceal ourselves. Somehow, I don't think we shall have long to wait. Yes, here, behind... Behind here. Here, that's it. Now, Thackeray's pads are clearly displayed there on the bench. Wait. Quickly, Watson, quickly. I think we're about to have a visit. Now, Watson, hold him. Hold him. Yeah. What the devil? How dare you? What do you think you're doing? All right. Call the colonel and the constable. It's all over, Ellis. As a cricket captain, you may be quite good, but as a killer, you're caught out in every sense of the word. Ellis was taken away by constable and Colonel Rufus. Under interrogation, he broke down and confessed everything. It was a diabolically clever plan that he'd conceived and almost carried out. It was left to Holmes to fill in the details, as usual. You may have noticed when we first arrived down here that I was unusually quiet at the bar. I was listening to the local gossip. It wasn't all about Thackeray and Monkton and their cricketing rivalry. There was a deal of talk about Thackeray's amours with the local ladies. Everyone thought he was after Monkton's wife. But quite a few locals knew that it was Ellis's wife with whom he was carrying on an affair quite openly. Ellis, being the local chemist, had no difficulty in obtaining the Brazil curare poison. It fades from the bloodstream in a matter of hours and so would remain undetected. Oh, yes, it was very clever. But thanks to you being on the spot, Watson, he had no chance of examining the dead man and removing his pads straight away. I think we've made our contribution to justice and the field bazaar, don't you? <laughs> Listen again next Sunday to The Stories of Sherlock Holmes with Graham Armitage's Holmes and Kerry Jordan as Dr. Watson.